Americans love the idea of the self-made man. In the 19th century, three of the most admired men were Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, and Frederick Douglass. Grant was a common man who got a break in going to West Point, but then who had a middling career in the military and really failed in business. Lincoln began life about as destitute as any free man in early 19th century America could, being born in a cabin literally in the woods in the frontier of Kentucky. He moved to Indiana with his family and then on to Illinois. He lost his mother, never had any formal schooling. Consequently, everything he achieved, you could say he owed to no one except the dent of his own effort and the sweat of his own brow. And then there's Frederick Douglass. As a 20-year-old young man, he escaped the Maryland slavery that he was born into. He not only had no formal schooling like Lincoln, but it was actually illegal to educate a slave. Knowledge was positively kept from him. And yet he learned, he understood, and he finally escaped to the north and gained his own freedom, and he built his life into a significant moral force for good in our nation. Of course, even the most disadvantaged are given life, abilities, opportunities, as small as some of them may seem. But what gets us excited is to see the rise to success of the unexpected. Uh, The poor man makes it rich. The racially mixed woman becomes a part of the British royal family. The guy who you thought was washed up actually wins the championship. There's something about stories like that that give us hope for whatever disadvantages or challenges we may be facing. We may feel like the odds are stacked against us at work, but then we happen to read Sojourner Truth's account of her own voyage out of slavery and into affecting thousands and thousands of people for good, and somehow we're given hope. We doubt we could ever succeed, and then we read some article about Steve Jobs having to sell his VW van in order to get Apple started, and we think, well, maybe I can put together a few things and something will work out. Such stories are the little engine that could gospel. We tell our children in order to exorcise laziness and inculcate effort. They are the proverbs of our secular age, which cast American utopianism into individual stories of transformation and success, and we love them. And when many Americans turn to read the Bible, they read it through these lenses— When great Bible films of the 1950s or Disney movies, more recently, find Bible stories, they turn them into stories of the underdogs winning, the enslaved Israelites beating their heartless Egyptian overlords, or young David coming out on top and finally getting the crown for himself. But in reality, 
This self-made story is the American preferred anti-gospel today. The Bible is not a book that highlights and celebrates our own provision for ourselves. It is not a smiling tale of how we have crushed life. It does not tell us that our biggest problems are the limits of our own negative thinking. It does not tell us that thoughts will move us to the next level. It's not about how we can find freedom through money. The Bible begins with God's good creation of the world and of us, and then immediately turns to the hellish mess that we have made of it. As the Bible says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The heavy weight of sin's deadliness cut us off completely from our good creator and ruler of all. God will stand for no abuse or injustice of anyone, especially of himself. The first five books of the Bible show the heavy weight of sin. Adam's sin in the garden brings death upon all. The sins of Noah's day almost extinguished the whole human race. Even in the midst of the story of God's grace that Moses records in these first five books of the Bible, sin is rampant. The story of Abraham is no American tale of the self-made man. It's a pagan idolater who's adopted by God in his sheer mercy, to whom God makes promises and to whom he gives the gift of faith. So in Exodus, no sooner had God delivered his people from Israel, uh, his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and given them his Ten Commandments, than his people committed spiritual adultery by making and worshiping the golden calf. And just a year later, when they journeyed to the land long promised them by God, this generation, who had just seen God's faithfulness in bringing them out of Egypt, this very generation failed to believe that God could deliver Canaan into their hands. So there in the middle of the book of Numbers, Moses recorded the almost 40 years wanderings in the wilderness, during which that whole generation of Israelites died off under God's judgment until their children had grown up, and then they would be the recipients of the promised land. And that's where we are in the story. Not a story of a nation forging itself out of the wilderness by their own wit and skill, but the story of sinners again and again rescued from their own weakness and wickedness as they are made the objects of God's merciful provision. The Bible is a story not of our might, but of God's might and of His mercy. And we see this in our passage that we come to this morning in the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 to 29. You'll find it starting on the bottom of page 147, if you look at the red Bibles provided. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in chapter 3, starting at verse 12. While you're, ret you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we are in the Bible these first five books of the Bible written by Moses, perhaps during the 40 years in the wilderness, at least in part to prepare the people for the conquest that was about to happen. Genesis is the beginning. 
Exodus to Deuteronomy really zeroes in on Moses' lifetime. Exodus is the account of God delivering Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And today, we're in that section of the Bible after God gave the Ten Commandments, but right before Joshua led the children of Israel uh, to conquer Jericho and the land of Canaan. Uh, Leviticus in the first half of Numbers are laws, and then there is that fateful sin of this generation that came out of Egypt. 38 years of wandering in the wilderness then happened as that generation died off. But then at the end of the book of Numbers, the last members of that faithless generation had died, and so they began to head back to the promised land that their parents had failed to trust God for. In Deuteronomy itself, the first five verses are a preamble, and the rest of chapters 1 to 4 are an historical prologue. As Moses recounts to the Israelites gathered across from Jordan what God had already done in their last few months and weeks. Deuteronomy is structured like a treaty, and we're in a series studying the first of three speeches that comprise the book. Our passage is, as I say, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Listen now as I read God's Word. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aroer which is uh, on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the regions of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Gershites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath-Jer, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them, beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor, which is just across from Jericho. Well, what we see here is that God is faithful to provide for His people. 
That's the theme of this passage. God had told Moses back when he had first spoken to him to go say to the enslaved Israelites, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God did exactly what he had promised. However unlikely it may have seemed to them the first time that promise was spoken out loud. In our passage, we see that God provides for his people what we could never provide for ourselves. First, we see that God is faithful to provide the land. God is faithful to provide the land. These first lands that are described, we would call the Transjordan lands, that is from the perspective of Canaan, they're across the Jordan. They're on the east side of the Jordan. That's the lands described in verses 12, really down to 18, these lands east of the Jordan River. They're the lands of the two kings that we read about them defeating in chapters 2 and 3. The kings Sihon and Og, they're taking their lands. And that's Moses recounting to the people verbally the history that he had recorded a few weeks or months earlier that happened back in Numbers 21. There you can read this story. Then in Numbers chapter 32, two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, asked for the land that they had just conquered. They clarified they weren't trying to get out of going over across the Jordan to help the rest of the Israelites conquer Canaan. They were happy to do that. But then when that was done, they wanted to come back and settle here because it was good for their cattle. Well, Moses agreed. Moses then recounted his affirmation of their taking these lands as their inheritance from God with these words in Deuteronomy 3.18, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. So it was part of the promised land. God would protect their families while they went and helped their brothers conquer Canaan. Because there was still this matter ahead of them of Canaan, the lands west of the Jordan, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, the lands that he mentions there in verses 18 to 20. These Israelites had promised to help their brothers go in and subdue this land. They could assume that the Lord had their backs every bit as much as he had given them the land, so he would give them the conquest of Canaan and provide their families with protection while they were away. And when we read through the book of Joshua, that's just what they do. In fact, if you were to look over toward the end of the book of Joshua, the next book after Deuteronomy, Joshua is the book about the conquest, you would find in Joshua 22 the account of these tribes being sent back home uh, because they had done what they said they would. And they're going home with Joshua's blessing because they had kept their word. Well, it was a time for that conquest to happen. It was getting closer and closer. So even in this recounting of the agreement now, what Moses was doing was helping to rally the troops to prepare to launch the invasion of Canaan across the river. Now, because some people aren't here every sermon I preach in Deuteronomy, some people are here just for one sermon, every time we're in these chapters, we have the question for people who haven't been in the other sermons, how is it right for God to dispossess a people of their land and give it to someone else? That's a great question. There's no short answer. There's a good answer. You can listen to the other sermons online. (laughs) I'll I'll just encourage you with this. As Christians, we understand this was unique. We understand that God was preparing a people for the Messiah. And the Messiah, Jesus having come, there is no nation today that's in that position. 
So this tells us absolutely zero about America's foreign policy or any other nations. And I'll happily talk to you more at length about that at the door, if you would like, afterwards. Notice there in verse 20 what the goal is. It is rest. The Lord your God giving rest to your brothers. Friends, this is the rest that follows work's completion, like God's rest on the seventh day. Or Christ's rest after the crucifixion. This is the rest that all our labors should lead to, and which labors will one day be swallowed up by this rest of work completed. It's what we're thinking about last week, with the race having been run, the fight having been fought, the faith having been kept. My friend, don't make work ultimate. In the rhythm of work and rest, it is always rest, which is presented in the Bible as a picture of blessedness. You remember that sweet invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Israelites put possession of the promised land was a temporary passing picture of the ultimate and unending rest that God promised to his people. So we read in verse 22 that God would fight for his people. He would provide them with the land. If they would only trust him, God would, as he always does, fulfill his promises. God would show himself faithful also, point two. So point one is the land. God will provide the land. Point two, he will show himself faithful to provide the leaders. And that's what we see in the second half of our passage, verses 21 to 29. You know, the people of Israel had not turned up here on their own. They weren't self-organizing. God used means to bring them to the promised land. And the most obvious human means that he used was Moses. And the authority that he exercised for so long on God's behalf to instruct and shepherd God's people. In fact, I couldn't help but notice when reading the passage, God uses Moses so much that sometimes Moses sounds like he's referring to himself as doing the same things that God does. So if you just look at our passage in verse 12, Moses says, I gave to the Reubenites and Gadites the territory, blah, 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 blah. Or verse, uh, verse 15, to Machir, I gave Gilead. And then 16, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory from Gilead. Well, that's all true. But you see then what he says in verse 18. He says, I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. God is the one who sovereignly gives the land. Moses is an administrator. He is the one who is also giving the land in a secondary sense. But you see this working together, which is absolutely typical of the God of the Bible. Sometimes when people first get a hold of the idea of God's sovereignty, they get very, very confused. That confusion probably never entirely leaves in this life, but it diminishes. And we think at first, we get a hold of the idea of God's sovereignty, therefore it means that there are no other, no other means being used at all. It's just God does it. 
you know, God made this chair. Well, actually, somebody made that chair under the sovereignty of God. You know, God's preaching this sermon. Well, I mean, you know, I'm preaching the sermon. I trust God is sovereign over it. There's all kinds of complexities, but it's a simple truth in Scripture that God uses means. He gave the people the land. He, in part, used Moses. He used this leader to give them the land. So here in our passage, Moses recounts to the people his request to continue with them, but God denied that request. Before we get to Joshua, which is how Moses partly explains this, we should simply consider Moses' request here in verses 23 to 25. It's represented with that strong word in verse 23, pleaded. Moses had pleaded with the Lord. And he's now sharing that with the Israelites. He's telling them that. Moses was the one who God had described as faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles. Moses had this unique role as the mediator of this covenant between God and his people Israel. He praises God there in verse 24. Beautiful verse of praise to God uh, for who God uniquely is. Verse 24. O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Well, friends, I don't know what you think, but I think rather than simply being read as sort of good etiquette and how to approach God, we should understand this as the very real background of Moses' request to be able to go over into the promised land that he makes in verse 25. I think he's taken up with the greatness of God. He saw God's greatness in the Exodus. Can you believe how exciting that would be? To see all that we read of in the Exodus, to to see it with your own eyes. Not a matter of faith, but you've seen it. And now it looks like he's beginning to see the same thing in this defeat of of Sihon and Og. And I wonder if Moses made this request Because with the defeat of those kings, he understood that the conquest had begun. So maybe Moses is wondering like, oh, the first time was so amazing. I wonder if God will let me see this because I thought he wasn't going to let me, but now this conquest seems to have begun. So maybe he's going to let me go on. I think there was a sincere excitement in Moses. That's where I think the request comes from. But the Lord is clear in his answer. And this clear no shocks some people who think that it's God's business to simply answer our prayers like some heavenly genie. Bible readers know from Christ's cup to Paul's thorn, we find multiple examples of God saying no to requests offered to him. And that no is never a ground for not trusting God. Friends, we can rest sure that if we are one of his own, resting in him, trusting in him, loving and fearing him above all others, that our plans are never better than his plans. So when he tells you no, you should say thank you. Because he has just introduced you to a better future than you would have known had he told you yes to a bad request. He is that good and that competent. Here Moses recounts in verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. A couple of things here. The word translated angry can certainly mean that, and it seems from 
Psalm 106, which refers to God's anger, that must have been a, a portion of what was going on there. But its root meaning is to cut across or contradict. It could also be a kind of play on the words of Moses to request to cross over the Jordan. So God crosses over his request. He crosses it out. The other thing is when Moses says to the Israelites that it was because of them that God was not granting this request, he may not be guilty of any Adam-like blame shifting. I know that's the comedic way to read the passage. And the comedic way to read everything is very popular these days. But it's not always right. Moses wasn't perfect. He could be blame shifting here. But he also was a kind of mediator, as I say, united with the people. And you know if the people had gone on into the land initially after those first spies went in, if they'd come back and said, yeah, God will give us this land, I assume Moses would have just traveled right on in with them. You know, his fate happened in part because he was united to them. After their parents had rebelled, Moses' lot was still there with the people. Now Moses' action at Meribah and Numbers 20 in striking the rock when the Lord had said simply speak to the rock, God was dishonored by, and we can speculate on exactly how that happened, but God told Moses that Moses was faithlessly misrepresenting him by his disobedience there, that that's why he wasn't going in. And of course, even that was part of Moses dealing with the people's fearful distrust of God's provision. Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 106. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So if you look in our passage at verse 26, even with the inclusion of because of you, I think there's a kind of humility of Moses to recount this story to the people. To tell them that he had made this request and that God said no. Why would he tell them about it? Well, maybe lest they think that God would do anything Moses wanted. This would clearly show them more about what God was like. God is perfectly sovereign, perfectly holy overall. Luther exhorts us, let us grasp the favor beneath the wrath. God would let Moses see the land. He would, but he wouldn't go into it. But Moses was not the one who would escape the penalty of Adam's sin. But Moses knew the one who would. Moses would be there one day in the promised land at the transfiguration with Jesus. Matthew 17, verse 3. The reward that Hebrews eleven twenty six says that Moses was looking for was the promised one. It was God himself, his presence, and that Moses got. The reward wasn't the promised land. Ultimately, it was the promised one. It was Christ. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to realize that God has provided a restored relationship with himself through Jesus Christ for all who will trust in him. And he is even in his mercy sending you messengers to tell you about this. Maybe like your Christian friend who told you about this service today. Or me right now, who's giving this sermon. Friend, you can be forgiven by God for your sins if you will trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross as being sufficient even for you. And if you'll give your life in repentance to Him. God raised Him from the dead. 
for our justification. My Christian friends, reflecting on God's mercy in this passage, consider His power and His sovereignty. Study to know more and more of the God who rules the nations like we see in this passage. This is the God who will command our trust. And that's the God in whom we may rest securely. You know, theology fuels praise. Uh, This morning, a little earlier, Mark Minter led us in a prayer of praise. And if you come here regularly, you'll notice that we always have a prayer in the service that isn't asking for anything, and it's not confessing our sins, it's just praising God. It's just speaking out the truth about what God is like. Why do we do that? And we tend to do it toward the beginning of our service. Because we understand that unlike you and me, the more we know the truth about God, the more we want to praise Him. He is utterly and completely good. He is also astounding. He is unique. And the more we explore what He is like, the more our hearts want to explode in praise. So I think our singing is actually probably better because we have a careful prayer of praise before we sing most of our songs. Where I think if we just came in and began to sing with nothing like that, I think we could sing okay, but I think we wouldn't have our hearts warmed in the same way with these marvelous truths about God, about who He is, what He's like. That's why I think Moses in verse 24, he begins his prayer to God with praising God, with speaking true things about God, showing that he sees who God is, that he acknowledges who God is. And pray that you, perhaps like Moses here, would desire God more than any of the gifts that he gives. I say this occasionally in sermons, so here's another time. I'm going to say it again. The one hymn, I know I want you to sing at my funeral, is the sands of time are sinking. Just raise your hand if you already knew that. That's excellent. Scores of you. Excellent. The whole hymn is laden with this beautiful imagery about heaven. Each stanza concluding with glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. But it's that last stanza I particularly love. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Friends, I hope that you and I can grow in this joyful anticipation, an anticipation that helps us in humility to accept God's goodness when he tells us no, even about something that we want so deeply, as Moses did here. And all the trials of life and the challenges of following Christ and fighting sin, remember God's mercy. Remember how he provides for us what no one else can. He has provided us as his people with leaders to help bring us where he wants us to be. The only other lesson I want to point out from Moses' example here is that no merely human leader is indispensable. You know, I remember my mom telling me that she was a little girl when FDR was president. And, uh, you know, when she's in third grade, she can only remember FDR as president because he was president, and then he was reelected, then he was reelected for a third time, and he was reelected for a fourth time. And it's just like the presidency was FDR, so when he died, it seemed like the presidency died. He's the only one who'd ever held that office. Well, friends, we learn over time that no human leader is indispensable. These people had been following Moses for 40 years, 
And it was a very active following. It's not like he was some constitutional monarch. I mean, this man was leading them through the most amazing situations. How many men and women have I known and loved and profited from and grown by that the Lord has now called home to himself? But he will continue to provide for his people. You know, this isn't and was never Mark Dever's church. If you have any doubt about that, whether you love it or you hate it, God has a surefire plan one day to make that crystal clear. It will be beyond all dispute. All of us who lead God's people only do so temporarily. We are part of His ongoing provision. We are temporary shepherds, under-shepherds really, of the one great shepherd to whom we will give an account for our stewardship. Of course, in Moses' case, there was a very clear designated successor, and that was Joshua. But Moses knew that part of his work was helping to raise up a leader that would go on after him and beyond him, and that he gave Joshua a model of what Joshua also would need to do. You know, it's always the responsibility of one generation of leaders to raise up the next. Thus, parents pray for children. Teachers pray for their students. Uh, mature Christian brothers and sisters in this congregation, we realize that part of our own following Christ is to help others follow Christ. Part of our discipleship, our own following of Jesus, is discipling others, is helping others follow Jesus. Part of our leadership is raising up a new generation of leaders. Uh, I'm thankful for how many men and women in this congregation are actually pouring their lives into doing that, just again and again. I got a very encouraging email from one of you this week saying you can't go into a coffee shop anywhere on Capitol Hill without seeing three or four or five pairs of men and women meeting, studying God's Word as they're training someone else to grow in Christ. I wonder who you are actively encouraging right now to take up your role when you're gone, when you're moved on. I just want to say that it's an unbelievable joy for me to do that in this congregation. Just even traveling in this last month and seeing Lyle and Nathan and Benoit and John Fulmer and Josh Manley and Brian Parks and so many others, I'm reminded of the privilege that you have afforded me for ministry in this place. Look again at verse 21 at Moses' command to Joshua. I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, that's Sion and Og that were defeated. So will the Lord do all to the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So Moses was reminding Joshua of God's faithfulness that he had just seen in the defeat of these two kings. That should encourage him for the coming conquest of Canaan. You realize that our confidence in God today is rooted in our knowledge of what he did yesterday. You can't cut off the knowledge of what he did yesterday and assume you'll have good faith for today. That's what you do when you don't read your Bible, when you don't read Christian biographies, when you don't get to know older Christians, when you don't keep in mind things God has done in your own life. All four of those are natural ways for us to receive strength and encouragement, faith, for the situations God puts in front of us today. How will we be able to obey Him as we should? if we don't actively keep in mind what he did for us yesterday, what he's done for older believers around us, 
what he's done for Christians through the history of the church that we read about. Or through the great people in the faith that we read of in Scripture. Friends, how, how will you make choices you need to make if you don't have that equipment that God has given us? And Moses' instruction here to Joshua about fearlessness, I mean, they're just right, aren't they? We can look in the future without fear because we do fear God who holds the future. Think of the beginning of Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you're a Christian, to live in ultimate fear of others shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what kind of being you are and what good plans God has for you and how certain he is of fulfilling those plans. We must live in the fear of God alone. Not what other people think of us, but of what God will say. And what a wonderful encouragement that last phrase is, isn't it? The simple fact that Joshua could be fearless of all his enemies because God would fight for his people. Brother or sister, uh, Deepak alluded to this in his prayer of confession, but whatever kind of fear uh, you may have, whatever fight you feel like you're engaged in today that seems over your head or beyond your means or to call for more than you have, you can know that if you belong to God, He will fight for you and your victory in Christ is sure. Now that doesn't mean that Moses will get to go into the promised land. It doesn't mean that whatever the particular thing you want, you will get. But if what you most want is in fact knowing the Lord better and being used by Him and knowing Him more and more closely, that you will get if you're His, and so much more with it. And then down in verse 28, the Lord tells Moses, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. Simply recounting these few statements here about Joshua was helping to prepare the people to accept Joshua as their next leader. Joshua would lead where Moses couldn't. In his mercy, the Lord continued to speak to his sinful people. God provides leaders for his people. But Joshua is not the leader that God finally provided for his people. Because even as the last chapter of Deuteronomy recounts Moses' death, guess what the last chapter of the book of Joshua recounts? Joshua's death. No, it's that way with all human leaders and pastors. Once pastors may have been in their early 30s, now they're nearing 60. One of the most mysterious of the world's forces to a young congregation like ours is age. The congregation that was here when I arrived knew it well. They understood it. They were well accustomed to the changes that came with age, often difficult, but to be accepted with grace and with trust in God. But never having experienced the ravages of age, the young can be forgiven for their utter ignorance of it. It'll be corrected soon enough. <laughs> As God calls first the Moseses of your life home, and then the Joshuas too. Joshua himself wasn't the people's eternal leader, nor did he lead the people into eternal rest. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The leader that will never need to be replaced wasn't Moses and it wasn't Joshua. It was Yeshua. 
Jesus, the Deliverer, He is the only one who can lead us safe home, even through the veil of sin and its penalty, death. Moses was cut off for sins, in part his own. Jesus was cut off in sins, none of his own. He was cut off for the sins of all those that would believe in him. That's why he died on the cross. Joshua was the one who led the people forward into the promised land. But even that land they would eventually lose and they themselves as individuals would die. Jesus leads us into the promised land. When he comes out of that tomb that first Easter morning, he is transgressing that border that was hardened, was created and hardened by Adam's fall. And he broke through that border. And all who follow him can follow him through that border, beyond death, on the other side in the presence of God. Now, if you think this is just fiction, I want to tell you, you're not only wrong, but you're arrogant. And I realize I'm speaking to the majority of the human race here. But there are not none of us who think this is true. It's not my idiosyncratic opinion. There are a few billion people over the history of the world who've actually thought this is true. And we have these tiny little booklets that will be used to defend this massive truth uh, at the doors on the way out if you'd like to think about this. I used to be an agnostic, and I became a Christian. And the, the reason, the reason, self-consciously anyway, that I became a Christian was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this is the little bit in history that if you're not a Christian, this will absolutely mess you up. You will not be able to think about it well. You will do best by ignoring it. The more you give attention to it, it will disturb you. I have seen this happen again and again and again in thoughtful friends, many of whom, I have to say, are now Christians. Friends, look carefully. Christianity is not simply a bunch of moral claims. We think it's better to live like this than this. Christianity makes very obnoxious, objective, historical claims. We say Jesus lived, Jesus was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and there are reasons to think that this incredible thing really happened. And that's what we would love to talk with you more about. Christ is the ultimate leader of his people. So you see, this, this gospel of Christianity is not a call for us to retry. Oh, let's have a fresh start. No, it's a call for us just to resign just to give ourselves to Christ entirely. It's not another test, like can we pass this one? No, no, friends, it's a call for us to rest our hopes entirely on Christ. It's the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, that leads us to eternal life, Jude 21. Our question for you this morning is, have you found that mercy? Have you found that resurrection life through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that that question would ring in our ears and that you would bring true answers to our minds. We pray that you would be honored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And please turn to page 14 in your bulletin. Let's exhort one another now to rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come. Let's stand as we sing.